Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. You're listening to the Talking Metal Podcast with your host, Mark Striegel. And special guest co-host, Victor M. Ruiz. iTunes number one hard rock and metal podcast. I'm Bud Friendly. Now, here are your hosts, Mark and Victor. Welcome one and all to another edition of Talking Metal Live. I am Victor from Mars Attacks over in Spain, and over in New Jersey, we have Mark Striegel. Yo, 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 yo. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Mark? Good. It's been a little bit uh, a little bit of chaos going on here in the house. Uh, just um, my wife was out at the store, and I, it takes me like 10, 15 minutes to get everything set up because I, I don't leave all my equipment set up. So uh, I was frazzled. I'm still a little frazzled, but uh, it sounds like we are live and everything is going across the stream and we have a handful of listeners joining us. So hello to you guys and hello to you, Victor. And I'm about to crack open my first beer of the evening. This is a um, transatlantic toast, I guess you could say, although... Uh, I've got the Gatorade. Unfortunately, no beer for me tonight. <laughs> uh, any particular reason why? Uh, Gastrointendinitis or whatever it's called. Uh, stomach bug. So. Right. So, but do you have like a fever and stuff too? Or just? No, just, uh, just my stomach's been bugging me all week. Went to the doctors this morning and they told me to lay off eating for a good part of the day and just have Gatorade and other similar things. So that's a socialist medicine for you. <laughs> well, we just had Mike Melenda, I think the guy's name is. Do you know that guy? He writes me all the time, especially when I put up the classic albums columns. He's a big fan of that and always comments on the albums. And he's always been pretty supportive. So uh, we appreciate your support. Yeah, he actually just made a nice uh, PayPal donation. So a big thanks to Mike. Melinda for doing that. That's his name, right? Mike Melinda? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he just checked in on Facebook, which you guys can do uh, right now, too. Uh, 
anyways, uh, yeah, you guys can check in with me on Facebook, on the Talking Metal page, on the Talking Metal digital page, on Facebook.com slash mstriegel. I'm checking them all as we do the live show. I am also on the Talking Metal Twitter account, which is twitter.com slash talking metal. Let's make the hashtag nice and simple for tonight. How about just hashtag talking metal? So I will be checking all those throughout the night. And uh, yeah, Mike checked in with a uh, donation and I wanted to play a song for him. You want to start the evening off doing that, Victor? And then you and I will come back and chat a little more. Sure. Perfect. How about a little Pantera going out to Mike right now? This is Tens. back as usual a little clip of the next song i guess to to wet your whistle there (laughs) yeah Um, you know we we clean these up when they go out in podcast form so you know just uh we're still working out the the uh the kinks here with the live show i i know i've been saying that for the last few months but it's not like we're doing these every day you know we do them once a week maybe once every other week sometimes 
So, <laughs> excuse me, we're still working things out. So thanks for bearing with us. And I know the last live show I posted as a podcast, Victor, your mic was getting clipped quite a bit. So hopefully we'll avoid that this time. And uh, yeah, thanks for, for bearing with us, guys. And as we work out all the technical issues with these live shows, which then go on to become podcasts. Absolutely. This is all a work in progress. And, you know, hopefully it will be a finely tuned machine in uh, no time. Definitely, definitely. So let's talk about the news, not just heavy metal news. What what was uh, one of the big stories this week in the news, Victor? Definitely the Rolling Stone cover. Um, Rolling Stone, and, and it's funny because I saw this on Facebook when people started posting about it. And the, the first sort of post that, that caught my eye was someone saying, oh, Rolling Stone, cutting edge as usual. And... It was just sort sort of like an a, it was odd. A, being sarcastic. No, I, I think uh, th- this comes back to a uh, Seinfeld quote. It seemed like a hipster doofus that was uh, <laughs> posting this because I, I mean the the whole thing. The person's comment was about how ahead of the game Rolling Stone was and how edgy they are and everything else. And you, you know, I sort of thought of it. And first of all, a lot of the comments that people like Nikki Six and Dave from uh, Device and Disturbed have made are similar to what I thought. You know, I th- I do think that it's uh, a bit of you know discouraging to not only bands for you know that strive to be on the cover, but also to the families and victims uh, that were involved in this bombing. You know, I, I think if you look back to nine eleven. Rolling Stone didn't have Osama bin Laden on the cover. Uh, they yeah. didn't have. I guess in defense, though, they were saying, well, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of magazines did have Osama bin Laden on the cover. Right, but you know, I th- I think this honestly comes down to a certain sector of the population right now that see this kid as as sort of a hero for some reason. You know, they see him as, you know. Um, plain clothes. He isn't like a Muhammad Atta that, you know, had uh, not only the, the various religious beliefs, but he also dressed, you know, a certain way. This kid obviously dressed like any everyday high schooler or someone that, you know, is fresh out of high school and in college. Uh, he's, you know, again, going towards that sort of hipster chic look. And, and there's actually been, you know, a, a bunch of people reporting that He's got all these groupies, so I, I honestly think that they're sort of you know, trying to tailor to that, if at all possible. Yeah, I heard the thing about the groupies, too, and it's, it's really disturbing. I mean, I don't know. Exciter posted, you know, John, who used to run the Talking Metal forums, posted on his Twitter thing, phony outrage is still high over the Rolling Stone cover. The sheep will grab internet pitchforks and torches for anything. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. I think John's a smart guy, so I'm not. I'd like to figure out more about what he's saying. But I, I think, I, I think Rolling Stone just, you know, I, first of all, I don't like the magazine. I never have, and I think it just goes to show what I've always said about their taste in music that they're so out of touch with reality and with the rest of the country. 
And, you know, when you put, you know, in modern times, the strokes and the yeah, yeah, yeahs on the cover, when you could be putting bands, which I don't necessarily like, but Disturbed or Nickelback or something like that on the cover, which are the bands that are actually selling records, but they choose not to do that. They choose to do what they think is cool. And they're, they're not in touch with the feelings and the pulse of the country. And in my opinion, never have been. That goes all the way back to, you know, when they were putting the Velvet Underground on the cover or were, you know, excited about whoever, some, you know, folk singer that was in the, you know, Greenwich Village somewhere, you know, it's like, I, I don't know, you know, it's like, I just never really got Rolling Stone. And we all know that they've always, I use the word hate, they've always hated heavy metal music. Right. Well, <laughs> back to uh, that Motley Crue cover that is, you know, a lot of people have talked about this week because of Nikki Six commenting where it says something to the extent of um, heavy metal, it's loud, it's hard, and it'll never go away, or it's loud, it's ugly, and it'll never go away, so, something to that extent. Yeah. So it's uh, like, are you serious? So, you know, one of the only times that they put a hard rock or metal band on their cover, and it's still, you know, a jab at, you know, the genre. And as you're saying, you know, for, for better or for worse, you know, do you like Disturbed or Nickelback or some of these other bands? You know, whatever. But, you know, they they, they want to be, again, ahead of the curb with all these bands that, you know, just, just look at New York Radio. Um, K-Rock, you know, sort of went that route with the Strokes and all these bands. And, you know, they no longer play any sort of rock-related music. Why? Because they weren't playing anything that was actually selling or that people were actually listening to. Yeah, totally. Um, and it's like, you know, you look at the guy behind in Rolling Stone magazine, and he also happens to be the guy behind the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or one of the guys behind it. So it's no surprise that, you know, a magazine that's always hated Kiss and maybe has occasionally done a, a report on him here and there in an effort to gain some some readership. But it's no surprise that the guy who hates bands like Kiss or like Foreigner or anything like that would also not allow these bands in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's really shocking that Rush did get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, and he, even even Led Zeppelin constantly got bad reviews in, in Rolling Stone magazine until they went back and revised those reviews in more recent times. Well, the the thing there, first with Rush, they were voted in by fans, so it wasn't actually the same panel that voted them in. With Zeppelin, though, I mean, to me, that's no different than what they did with Van Halen or Guns N' Roses. They were looking for that big payday of being able to say, oh, you know, we reunited, you know, Zeppelin. We reunited VH. We reunited Guns N' Roses. And out of all of those... You know, the, the Van Halen and Guns N' Roses debacles, you know, blew up right in their face. The, you know, they were expecting a, a big payday and they got nothing out of it. Yeah. And, you know, it's like even David Bowie, who I know is not uh, heavy metal or, or even hard rock for that matter. But he did not go when they inducted him, which I thought, you know, because and he issued a statement that he just simply didn't believe in the whole thing, which I thought was was 
something they really needed to hear because you know all those guys on the on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame board they they think Bowie's amazing and he is he's a, a you know a, a true artist but I just thought it was great that he didn't give in to their their BS you know and uh, Madonna showed up there to induct him and he wasn't even there which I thought was great. <laughs> That, that's awesome. I, I did not know that, but yeah, I mean, Bowie's always been a, a Rolling Stone darling. Yeah. Uh, totally. It's funny, though. I've always mentioned how, you know, as you're saying, that they've turned their back on certain styles of music, but the further we get along, you know, as time goes by, there are so many bands from the 80s that they haven't even inducted yet. I mean, if you think about it, they inducted Metallica, they inducted Guns N' Roses, and there's a whole plethora of bands that sold a shitload of albums that they've, you know, uh, turned a blind eye to. Oh yeah, they'll never induct Def Leppard. You know, they'll, which they they should, they should. They, I mean, they're never gonna induct John Bon Jovi. At least I think not. Although, because John Bon Jovi is, you know, such a big supporter of liberal causes and uh you know it hangs out with the the boss maybe they will will uh induct john bon jovi but you're saying anyways now that the fans vote is that like moving forward how it's gonna work apparently there's one vote or or, or one inductee that's now voted by the fans and that's how rush got in oh. they were the, well the i would most- wonder if kiss would then get in somehow i don't i don't know if I remember correctly, I think Kiss was the third or fourth most voted band on the same list. And they really didn't, obviously, you weren't aware of this taking place. They obviously didn't make a big deal out of it. I'm wondering right. if from going forward, you know, all of these bands that they've turned their backs on, like Kiss, Maiden, Priest, Deep Purple, UFO, um, and so many others that you mentioned as well. Yeah, Deep Purple. I mean, Deep Purple, that's that's insane, you know, that they're not in there. They, I mean, from, you know, the pre-Gillen stuff, you know, they had the big hit with Hush, you know, through the course of the just, you know, groundbreaking and and cornerstone of hard rock and heavy metal music, if, if not just rock in general, you know, those albums like in rock were just so important to the history of rock music. And the fact that they're not, they're not there, um, is absolutely amazing fireball you know there's so many just great records that they put out that were so important mike so how do we pronounce mike's name is it melada melada melenda i was saying melenda before but that's not right it's m-e-l-a-d-a mike melada melada okay yeah anyways he is checking in on facebook right now and he says i agree with everything about rolling stone magazine i really got pissed off with them putting Eddie Van Halen at number 70 for the best hard rock guitar player or the best rock guitar player. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's absolutely Joke. ridiculous. Um, and, oh, he's, yeah, sorry we're mispronouncing your, your name. Um, it's Mike Malata. Malata. Yeah, Mike Malata. So, Mike, you are totally right about that Rolling Stone list where they pick the best guitar players. I mean, you know, it was just ridiculous. Eddie Van Halen. I mean, I understand. All right. The guy from Sonic youth or whatever, you know, they want to say, well, he's an artist with his guitar, you know, and, and, but to, to put 
a bunch of dopey. How could you, how could there be 70 people ahead of Van Halen? In my opinion, he Van Halen should probably be number one. I mean, maybe Hendrix because Hendrix really took the guitar to a whole nother level. I mean, right. I guess there's like jazz guys. I mean, you know, even you could say, you know, Muddy Waters was one of the first electric guitar players. Robert Johnson. I think all those guys were important. But Eddie Van Halen is a top five, in my opinion. And in anybody, anybody who knows anything about music would have him in the top 10 for sure. Right. I agree. I mean, number, number 70. That's frick, that's ridiculous. Is, yeah, that, and they have is to, that actually right, Mike? I got to Google that. Is that actually right? I believe so. And they had like Zach Wilde in the 90s. They had Jack White, I think, was like number seven, which, you know, I dig the white stripes and all, but for him to be, you know, in the top 10 is just ludicrous. I mean, I'm I'm not the biggest Hendrix fan, but I do understand, you know, his importance uh, throughout the whole grand scheme of things if you want to look at revolutionary or pioneering players you know hendrix and eddie van halen have to be right up there and i mean as much as i dislike uh clapton you know i i i don't know i guess you have to throw him in there in the top five for his work with cream and you know i guess it's arguable you know uh, jeff beck jimmy page and uh, Pete Townsend, as far as you know, the most influential players possibly ever, you, you know, with with those guys because everything sort of. Spawned. I don't think that's right. I I'm looking at a list right now that's a Rolling Stone best guitar player list, and Eddie's at number eight. They've done a few. There there's one where he's really really low. This is Eddie's at eight. Let's see who they have on this list. Who's ahead? Uh, Chuck Berry, seven. B.B. King, six. Jeff Beck, five. I mean, I put Eddie above Jeff Beck. I love Jeff Beck. Keith Richards, four. Jimmy Page, three. Eric Clapton, two. And Jimi Hendrix, one. I, I, I mean, I put, I put Eddie at number one or possibly two on my list. But Right. Uh, I would agree with you 100%. I mean, if I'm going... With my favorites, I mean, I'd put him at one. I'd put Page at two, honestly. Right. Crazy stuff. Anyways. Uh, so, yeah. So, I guess a lot of people are now talking about, well, they put, you know, Charlie Manson on the cover back in the day. Right. And I will say this. The thing about Charlie Manson was he did, a, you know, he was responsible for this horrific crime, uh, or at least he was responsible for convincing people to do a horrific crime. Isn't that how it worked out? I'm not sure. Right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he did in a weird way. I didn't, I don't know what the article was like about him. And I don't even know what the article is like about this Boston bomber guy, but just the fact that you put this cute kid on the cover, as opposed to a picture of him looking all beat up and mangled or in jail or something that isn't like, uh, um, this cutesy little picture. I, I think, I think that that's the problem. And with Manson, you know, this probably doesn't make much sense, but he, he was sort of tied in with the music world. Like he tried out for the monkeys and he wrote songs. Not that that he still probably should have never been put on the cover or glamorized in any magazine, but 
in some weird way, he was kind of connected to the, the music world. And I think back in those days, Rolling Stone was more of a music magazine than it's become nowadays. Yeah, some people have argued, you know, why didn't they put the picture of him all bloodied from the boat on the cover? Which, yeah. if you want to say, you know, he's a monster, this or that, exactly what you're saying. Instead of having a, a shot that glamorizes him, have one that actually shows you know, similar to Manson, a, a beat up Manson in, in a uh, orange jumpsuit, you know? Totally. Well, maybe we should get into a little music. Yep. A song that, uh, I, I guess this came before the whole Manson thing. And apparently he used this as sort of a guide to, to do what he did at that point in time. I mean, I've never fully understood the story. Yeah. But, uh, oh, and real quick, Mike just sent just uh, sent me a link, and yeah, they in, definitely did have uh, on one of their lists. They had uh, Eddie at number seventy, which is just the crime. It's an outrage. It's it's ridiculous. It's just you know, and you know what it is. It's just it's like stupidity. Yeah, it's similar to everything else that we've mentioned. And again, the only reason that they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is because they thought they would be the guys that reunited the the four original members. Yeah. So, oh. anyways, yeah, a little helter skelter. There we go.
We are back. Little Helter Skelter there from Motley Crue. First time I ever heard that song was in a commercial advertising for the band playing at, I think it was Nassau Coliseum. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, it's weird. I kind of got into that song and that led me back to the original version by the Beatles, which a lot of people don't like the Motley Crue version. I, I, I still love it. Yeah, me, me too. It's funny. Years later, I remember listening to SOU and hearing someone doing, you know, Helter Skelter and saying, wow, these guys are doing a, a very bad ripoff of the Motley Crue version. And it ended up being the Aerosmith version off of Pandora's box. So, so some tweets coming in. John Bonham, a.k.a. Handle Metallica underscore 87, is saying he's still. Let's see. What what the hell is this? He's uh, he's saying he still listens as well. I don't know if he's talking about the live show, but due to other things, I don't listen to the podcast anymore. Miss the forums, but due to other things, I'm not sure what that means, John. Sorry, you're not listening to the podcast anymore. I don't know if that means you're listening live, but uh, if you are, thanks for uh, listening live. And uh, John, aka Exciter, is listening. Um, haven't had much to say. He will use a better form to explain himself. Uh, maybe he's talking about his uh, Rolling Stone comment, which was phony outrage is still high over the Rolling Stone cover. The sheep will grab internet pitchforks and torches for anything. Cool. So, anyways, next next topic, right, Victor? Yeah, and I before jumping onto that, I do have to say I'm disappointed in John that he didn't bust out his famous word sheeple. Sheeple with John Bonham or John, uh, John Exciter? Exciter. Oh, okay. Combination of sheep and people. Oh, he used to always sheep. say that on the forum, sheeple. Cool, guys. We are on Twitter talking live with you guys. The hashtag is simply talking metal. And that hashtag is good actually for the podcast, too. So if you want to get involved in a talking metal conversation on Twitter, just use that talking metal hashtag and we will chat for sure. Cool. So I wanted to touch upon the whole Spotify controversy this week. I wanted to bring it up with you because you were the first real um, person that I had heard really talking Spotify up. I knew of people, you know, that had been using it, but you were actually the first person that I heard make a valid argument for, for actually using Spotify over CDs and, and other things. And Obviously, in the news this week is Tom York of Radiohead and a producer who mentioned that um, Spotify isn't good for young acts because they don't get paid fuck all, is what they posted on Twitter regarding how they feel that uh, Spotify works. They more or less allude to the fact that it works well for established artists uh, but not for new bands that are trying to promote their albums. Right. You know, I, I, I see both sides of this argument, but my whole thing that I have arrived at in more recent times is I really think the day of selling a full-length album, which usually didn't contain more than one or two good songs, but you had to go out and buy it, uh, is a thing of the past. And I, whenever I say that, people are like, that's not true. In the 70s and 80s, albums were so much better. They weren't. They weren't. You just remember no. the good ones. 
they were just as bad, if not worse, than they are now. Yeah, and Led Zeppelin and and Tool and Metallica and David Bowie, these are bands I think put out a lot of perfect albums that you could listen to all the way through. But you got to remember, they were hundreds of thousands of other records that were coming out in the 70s every year and the the 80s and they were all crap most of them didn't have one good song on them and then there were the bands you know that had you know they had one good song and and so many hard rock and heavy metal bands fall into that category where you had to go buy the whole record just to because a lot of times these songs weren't released as 45s and you had to go or cassette singles, and you had to go buy the whole record for for one song. And we got ripped off for years, and I think that business model was, what, what's the word, uh, an, an anomaly. Is that the right word? You know, it was, it was just like this strange thing that existed for a brief amount of time from, you know, the mid-60s through, you know, I don't know, what, like 2000? Yeah, around there, around when Napster sort of yeah. came about. And I think I think that business model is gone. And I think back, you know, my my great uncle was a, a a radio guy in Buffalo, New York. His name was Bob Striegel. And when he he was an engineer, he'd run the equipment, he'd run the boards, he sang, he you know played piano, and he he was like you know, and then he went out and he did news reports too, like when the. Uh, I forget that what's that rainbow bridge or whatever opened between Niagara Falls and, uh, and, and, and Canada, you know, America and Canada. He was there for the opening of that reporting live. And so anyways, he was like a jack of all trades radio guy. And when uh, like Bing Crosby would come through town, Bing Crosby would be playing a show in Buffalo and, and he'd go into the radio station there in Buffalo and he'd sing live on the air many times using the local you know, musicians that worked at the station and he'd sing live on the air to promote his song or his show. I'm sorry, that night. And he wasn't selling records. He wasn't there. No one was buying records at that time. He was promoting a show. That's how the musicians made their, their money by performing live. So I think, I think that, you know, the idea that you make records and you get rich that way, it isn't working right now. Maybe the times will change and it'll come back. Maybe it's a good thing people like Tom York are fighting fighting for it. But the the flip side of it is that it's just not realistic in these times where, you know, grabbing music is uh, so easy, whether it's legally or illegally. Which is, you know, I mean, they should be selling downloads on 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 iTunes for like twenty five cents a song. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you. Whenever the whole, you know, argument comes up, and, and I've asked a lot of different artists, is the album format dead? And a lot of them say, oh, no, no, no. You know, I, you know I'm putting out an album and this and that. And okay, I understand that. But especially older groups that are, you know, going out on tour and just playing one song off of the album live. I mean, what's the point in even recording yeah. Entire album. Yeah, there, there's no, there's no point. And the way Motley Crue did it last year was the correct way. They put out yes. one single and they went and they did a tour. And that's what Bumblefoot has hinted that Guns N' Roses should do. That's what Bruce Dickinson has hinted he'd like to do with with Maiden or maybe it was Adrian Smith, one of those guys. I can't remember. 
But that's that's what should be happening is and that's you know, that's how it was back before big business started, you know, forcing us to buy full length records. That's how it was. You know, you'd release a song, one song. There wasn't this this whole thing. And you know what? Tom York is is I, I like Tom York. Some talking metal listeners will probably be very disappointed in that. But I've seen Radiohead in concert numerous times. I love I love Radiohead. And they pull it off. They put out a good record, and it's a piece of art. Their record, but most people don't do, can't do that. And it's like, and and you don't need to do it anymore. So maybe Tom York should not put his stuff on Spotify because he can put out good records, and a guy like me will actually go buy the CD of it. You know, so I, I don't know why he should just. I think he should just. If he doesn't like Spotify, do what Tool does. Don't sell your music there, you know? Right. And it's funny. Uh, I guess Giz- he's saying they don't, they don't make any money from it anyways. So don't put your music there. Is what I'm well, um, Gizbutt is the name of a guy who used to play in the Prod- Prodigy. Excuse me. He played on their Fat of the Land CD, and he's probably best known for his guitar work on the song Firestarter. He has a band called the more I see, which uh, I've actually interviewed Peter Ellis, who was the third lead singer in White Wizard, and he was the original lead singer of The More I See. Anyway, he's pretty much said that he thinks that Tom York uh, has come across this decision because he's sort of becoming an, an old man that's scared of technology. And uh, he's also saying that, you know, Tom shouldn't sort of criticize different models because Radiohead was one of the first bands to you know, offer an album for free and a lot of other bands jump suit, including the more I see. And he pretty much alludes to in a press release that he sent out saying that, you know, it was one of the worst things that they ever did because no one ever bought the one album that they did release for free. Uh, he's also saying that with their new album, they're leveraging Spotify to release an exclusive EP that has three tracks on it. And he's pretty much saying, you know, the whole purpose behind it is to get people to listen to those tracks and go out and buy the album if they're interested. And if not, you know, they, they have those three tracks to fall back on. And at least they're making some sort of money off of plays from, from those tracks. And if anyone's interested in buying the rest of the album. Right. Right. Yeah. It is interesting. You know, I was preaching about Spotify uh, so much, you know, a year or a year and a half ago, and I still do love Spotify and I love how it allows me to listen to it. But despite what I said a year and a half ago, maybe even two years ago on the podcast, I've now really rediscovered CDs and am definitely enjoying the better quality of, of audio that you get from listening to CDs uh, now that I'm doing a lot more driving, living in the suburbs and, and stuff, uh, which, you know, when I lived in Jersey City or Manhattan, I just, I never, I never really drove anywhere. I didn't even own a car for years, you know, and it's like, it's so nice, especially if you have a good sound system. I mean, you know this, Victor, from, I don't know how much you drive in Spain, but you know, from living in Jersey, it's just so great to, yep. to just sit in your car and just crank it and, and just, be absorbed by the music without teeny little earbuds just you know penetrating your eardrums you can just feel the you know the the the, especially with heavy metal and hard rock just feel the the sounds kind of encompass you and it's 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 fun to drive and listen to cds for me at least again something i haven't done in many years 
Oh yeah, I I love it as well. I mean, I have a um, an i iPad. I was going to say iPod with 120 gigs of music on there, and I make sure to rip everything in CD quality. So it's more or less. I mean, it's slightly less than CD, but uh, you know, same deal. I love to just get in the car, crank some you know tunes, and just drive endlessly. You know, with really no no goal at all, but just to check out some cool music and see some nice scenery. Totally. Bill Lipka checking in. He is listening. Bill, thanks for joining us. Now, Bill, also known as DJ Wiser, he had his own like radio thing going for a while. I remember tuning in once or twice, but I, I don't think he's doing it anymore. And uh, anyways, guys, you guys are so great uh, spending your Friday nights with Victor and I. And, and Victor always basically sets up and kind of produces these Friday night live shows. So big thanks to you, Victor, for doing that. And should we check out some more music? What do you think? Sure. Let, let's do that. Uh, sort of keeping with the theme, we're going to jump into another cover here. This is Machine Head covering Judas Priest, a classic track off of, I think it was Defenders of the Faith was the Sentinel? Yes, it was. So there we go. little... Machine Head with the Judas Priest classic, The Sentinel. are back and that was a little i was about to say judas priest with the sentinel that's machine head doing judas priest off of their last album yeah it's fun i used to remember listening to any w late at night in new york and they used to play that song and love bites and and things like that by priest and it's just so sad that you know a band as great as priest you only get to hear you know two to three songs out of their whole entire 
like close to 40 year catalog. Yeah, but on NEW, like you said, they'd only do it late at night, and you know, they it was almost like they were scared to play it during the day. It's like my memories of that record are there was this guy, John Nicholson, his name was, and he was in the Hinsdale Central radio club my 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 high school had a a radio club and their own fm radio station only i believe for my freshman year of high school and then it closed down so i kind of was able to get involved with the radio station through this guy john nicholson and the label sent our high school that record and of course it ended up in my personal collection um (laughs) and that that is uh, probably one of my first promo albums that I ever got for free, and it's been probably thousands of them since then, having worked at a record store numerous different times in my life, and then, of course, at uh, MTV and VH1, where I just was you know, bombarded with a bunch of free CDs almost every day. Right. Well, when I was in college, radio it was very similar, and it was funny towards the end of my involvement the guy that came in the new program director or not program director i was actually the program director but um the guy that came in that sort of oversaw everything said well you know heavy metal is garbage so we're gonna get rid of all of the heavy metal albums that are in the library and you know me and two other people sort of looked at ourselves we said well what are you gonna do with them we're just going to chuck them in the garbage or break them with a hammer. And we were like, okay, well, how about you let us, you know, have them. Sure, do whatever you want. So, I mean, we were taking home literally boxes of vinyl albums that this guy had no right. clue what their value was or who these bands were. I mean, there was outrageous stuff in there. And this guy wanted to turn, you know, the the college radio station into WPLJ. So there were all these like great rock albums, even that, yeah. you know, ended up going home with one of us because he, you know, he didn't know what he, what he had. And then once, you know, each one of us left, he was like, well, you know, where's meatloaf's bat out of hell. Well, you specifically told us, you know, you didn't want that because you didn't know who meatloaf was. So go figure one of the biggest selling albums of all time. And the guy had yeah. no clue what it was. Craziness. Uh, anyways, yeah, you guys are checking in on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Bill Lipka says uh, that the uh, he's letting us know there's some nasty storms rolling through Chicago and the Pearl Jam fish shows might be stopped because of the huh. storms. Huh, interesting. Bill, remember to keep uh, talking metal as your hashtag there. And Todd is checking in. Todd, you're such a devoted listener, man. We We love you, Todd. Thanks for listening. Todd. 257 is his handle on Twitter. And he says, what an awesome version of the Sentinel. Hadn't heard that before. Well, thanks to Victor for playing that for you, Todd. Yeah, glad that he enjoyed it. That was actually a bonus track, but uh, in my opinion, possibly the best song off of that album. Cool. Well, I'm drinking a beer right now. I want to talk beer with you. I'm drinking this Weyerbacher. W-E-Y-E-R-B-A-C- H E R. I'll show you. Can you see it there? We got a camera going between the two of us. Yeah. Uh, and it's called insanity is uh, the, the, uh, 
kind of beer. I guess Weyerbacher is the, the company. And it has a little clown on it. This is the most unique tasting beer I think I've ever had. It, it's, it's brewed like in a wooden, um, what's the stuff they, they brew scotch in? Like a cask, is that what it's called? I'm not sure. But a wooden barrel, I guess. They make oh, this yeah. beer in. And you can actually taste the wood as you drink it. It's a delicious beer. And if you have a chance, it sounds a little cheeseball-y, insanity, you know. But if you see it, pick it up. High alcohol content and a delicious taste. My uh, two favorite things to get out of a beer. But you you uh, sampled some beer this week. Let's talk about that, Victor. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, he's holding it up on the uh, webcam right now. Awesome. It is Trooper, the Iron Maiden beer. And it was funny because I was going down the beer aisle in my supermarket, figuring, all right, I'm going to pick up you know my usual beer. And the first thing that I see is this, and I'll show this to you in an, uh, another episode or another week, a huge ACDC beer, which looks almost like a 40 ounce. Yeah. I saw that and I said, well, if they have the ACDC beer, what are the chances that they have Trooper? And right below it was Trooper. Now, is this like a liquor store in your area there that has just like hundreds and hundreds of beers, or is it? It's just a supermarket. Wow, just it's, a supermarket. Wow. And they, so they, in the supermarket in Spain, they have the Iron Maiden Trooper beer. That's wild. It, it would be the equivalent of a Walmart in the States because it's got clothes, toys, TVs. Well, that's food. massive then. I mean, that's like, that's, yeah. that's big business for, for, for Maiden. I would yeah. The, the, I mean, well, I'll, I'll get to the selling point in a second, but the, the first thing that I noticed when I picked this up, is that the bottles are plastic. And that was odd. This is the first beer that I've ever tried that actually has plastic bottles. I'm assuming the reason behind that is that you could sell these at a festival right. or at a show, and they don't have to, you know, bottle with glass, you know, X amount, and then do another batch and with the plastic bottles. So they probably just do them all in plastic just for logistics and to keep, you know, the price down. Uh, I know that a few people that I've mentioned this to, they've said that that's a deal breaker for them, that it has to be in glass. So, and why, why is that? Why do they want it in glass? Does it affect the taste? I've always heard, for example, glass to the, the cans, for example, that it's a different taste for the beer. I mean, there are people that argue that the, the draft version tastes different to you know, the bottle or the can, but I'm going to be honest uh, for example, a few years ago, they started selling Coors here in Spain. And to me, that was a big deal because it was a beer that I would drink from time to time in the States. So you have sort of a taste for it. But in the end, the actual water has more to do with the taste than, than the container does, in my opinion. Because in this case, the Coors that you're drinking over here in Europe, for the most part, is bottled in England. So they're using English water as opposed to U.S. water. So the taste is slightly different. The cores that they sell here is actually a slightly stronger tasting, and I believe that it's a result of that. And it could also be that, you know, the English may be used to drinking stronger beers so that they're, you know, sort of tailoring it to that audience. Um, but getting back to the Maiden beer, it's made by Robinson Brewery. On the back, it specifically says that Bruce Dickinson was the one that had a hand in setting the, the beer up and tasting it and 
doing all types of feedback with them to sort of get things, you know, um, in the right manner to represent the band, I guess you would say. The, the beer and, you know, for lack of a better term, it's very, um, I don't want to say that it's light, but it doesn't have like a strong uh, abrasive taste going in but it does have like a slight after kick to it, which is sort of reminiscent of a bass beer or of a Newcastle even where with the Newcastle, it's sort of, you know, strong up front, but this is very smooth going in and you get that, you know, for lack of a better term, that after kick right. after taking that swig. So um, I found it very interesting. You know, I, I like the beer. It's 4.7% alcohol always something uh which is not a lot which is not a lot absolutely because what i was purchasing at the time what i usually buy is is carlsberg which is 5.2 if i'm not mistaken and then there's a spanish beer uh which is called voldam which is 7.2 which is the most you can purchase here in europe yeah this Uh, insanity beer i don't know if you can see that it's 11.1 alcohol Wow, which is, which is okay. high for a beer. I mean, a scotch. Yeah. What is this? Like, a, if your average scotch is like what forty five, well, forty to forty five percent alcohol. So, you know, eleven is is comparable. High wine, yeah. yeah. It, it's it's a lot more similar to that. Like beers that are mass produced. You have Samuel Adams. I know has put out a batch, a, a specific beer that was 11.1 as well but that was with a limited run but for the most part everything is in the neighborhood of of about five um so i was surprised that this was you know uh 4.7 the biggest issue in in my opinion is the actual price the price of the beer is two euros which translates to two roughly 265 per bottle yeah it's high. That's definitely a little high. Yeah, the the ACDC was the same thing, but like I said, it's it's almost a forty ounce. Yeah, interesting. So, it, so I mean, you're getting a lot more beer for for what you're paying. Um, actually, it uh, now that I think about it, it, looks a lot like the Foster's can. So I'm not sure if that's forty exactly. That may be less than forty. Yeah, I, I don't know. Probably less. I mean, a forty is a big freaking bottle of beer. Yeah. But um anyways, yeah, I used to drink forties. Uh back you know, back in the nineties, the whole Snoop and Dre thing, you know, it was cool to drink forties for a while. But um anyways, <laughs> what what was the beer that those guys drank? Um The Colt forty five. Yeah, Colt forty five. Billy D. Williams there in the commercials way back when. Yeah. Yeah, Billy D. Williams. <laughs> Colt forty five malt liquor. Anyways, yeah, we're going to wrap it up, guys. Uh, what do you got for the last song there? The last song is something that... Um, uh, actually, let's see. Because I want to mention gonna... something before you play it, but I, but I just was wondering what the last song is. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I did have Maiden queued up, but I did also have the uh, Detroit Rock City uh, track that Bumblefoot did. I mean, I don't know which okay. one. Uh, which I don't know. I mean, whichever one you want, man. Okay. Well, the the, the maiden is ready to go. Oh so. yeah, maiden school. I do okay. want to check that Bumblefoot thing out. Which uh, 
Rex Brown on on bass. It should be good. Uh, but anyways, um, I just uh, we're kind of doing these out of order. The next podcast that will be posted is uh, my Vivian Campbell interview. But of course, if you're listening to this in podcast form, it was the last podcast that was posted. I'm talking to the live listeners now, which is just a great interview. Uh, if you haven't heard it, check it out. I'm talking to the podcast listeners right now. It'll be, I believe, episode 422 of Talking Metal. And I believe for the first time ever, Vivian Campbell is talking in detail about his time with Dio in a fond way. Um, but I've just been kind of on like a crazy Dio kick lately. And, you know, I mentioned in our last episode, first of all, I wanted to mention something I didn't mention in 422 of Talking Metal, which is that, you know, the whole reason Vivian left Dio, which we already spoke about, I think, on the episode with Ken Pierce, is because of, of he was fired, basically, after Sacred Heart came out. And it, he was in a big argument over money with uh, Ronnie James Dio and Wendy Dio. And you know what? This Wendy Dio, the more I learn about her, and I, I've had a few drinks at this point, so I sh- probably shouldn't be saying this because it's probably going to kill my chances of an interview with Dio Disciples, which are playing in New Jersey Monday, which I can't make anyways. But anyways, I'm just the more I learn about her, the weirder stuff seems to be and I, I don't know Victor like if, if, if you have ever thought about this or even care but what was up with their freaking marriage I mean was it even real I mean I'm starting to wonder what the hell was going on because we now know that Wendy Dio was running around LA chasing young rockers trying to get uh, hook up with them who knows if she went out with one of the guys in rough cut um, I believe she probably did of course she was probably freshly married to Dio at that point. I don't know when they actually got married, probably late seventies. So by the early eighties, she was already running around chasing guys in LA. And, you know, Stephen Piercy claims he turned her down and didn't, you know, hook up with her on a sexual level, but he could have, and you know that he wasn't the only one. And this is the early eighties. And then after Dio dies, we hear she marries her boyfriend of 20 years I, I I mean, what the fuck is going on? What kind of marriage was that? I mean, and why aren't we like did Dio have a girlfriend and or girlfriends? And I mean, what was his deal? It's like, I, I, I don't know. I'm very confused by the whole thing. And, and I now believe that the Ronnie Wendy marriage, I don't believe it, but I think there's a good possibility. There's something really strange about that marriage. So, so it was 20 years that she was with? 20 the, years. That's what Blabbermouth said. Her, her long-term boyfriend of 20 years she married. And there's, you know, you can go to these message boards and stuff. I was doing a lot of Googling on this this week. And <laughs> people are saying, oh, he wanted a divorce from her for a long time. Because I remember hearing back, like, I think at some point in the, in the 90s, that he was living away from her in a different house. Like with that house Sam Dunn went to to do the Dio interview for, uh, what was that movie, Headbangers Journey? or Yeah, mm-hmm. I believe he was living alone in that house, which makes sense if she was with, living with her boyfriend of 20 years. You know, but right. it's, like, it's like, what was going on that, you know, people, people online claim that, that she wouldn't let him divorce her. But the whole thing is, there's something, there's something weird there. 
Uh, that's all. That's all I know. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. Uh, and you know, they say, oh, well, right before you know he died, she was there for him, and yeah. But but what what the fuck was going on there? And and did he have a girlfriend? Did he? What was his deal? What was he just like a, a loner, asexual type of dude? Did you know they never had kids together? She was you know chasing you know guys around L.A you know, way, way back when, you know, over 30 years ago when they were, you know, freshly married, she was already out on the prowl, you know, looking for dudes, you know, what, I don't know. It's, the whole thing is rather strange. Absolutely. That's the, I never heard the whole, again, 20 year thing that that's so shocking, you know, that as you're saying that, you know, there was sort of this facade maybe put up and, I don't know. Would you think that they stayed together just because he didn't want to split, you know, half of could be, it could be. And she may have been tied into like a lot of his stuff financially. Uh, right. I don't know. I don't know. I tell you one thing, this book that's coming out that he wrote three fourths of, and she wrote the rest of, and probably rewrote what he wrote. That's going to come out in the MTV book print thing which i think is associated to the vh1 classic book thing that ace put his book out on with with john but it's like i i don't even want to read it i i really don't because i i i'm not sure i believe it and uh i don't like wendy deal i there's something about her i don't trust i think i think she's weird i think she's she and i i don't know if i believe you know that she had Dio in her heart uh, on a romantic level a and I don't know maybe she did on a financial level but I don't know there's something very off and strange about that whole situation interesting be interesting if you know other people come forward after that Dio book comes out to maybe you know, set set some sort of record straight with uh, with whatever her accounts are, because I mean, obviously he's not going to be revisiting anything. Uh, but it'll be funny to see, you know, if Vivian comes out or if Vinny comes out. I mean, all these guys. Vivian, have- Vivian, you got to listen to this interview that I that that I did with him. He doesn't like her, you know. He and I, I almost wonder. You know, he talks about why he formed the Last in Line band, but it's something, you know, and he doesn't get into it totally in the interview, but he, he, for the first time ever mentions Dio Disciples in the interview that I did with him. And he, and he says, you know, why, why should these guys be out playing the songs? He's like, you know, the Last in Line band is the guys who actually played and wrote the songs, you know, and he is, is. You know, he's he's suffering from cancer right now and he's he's hopefully going to get better soon. But I think he's all in on this last in line thing. I mean, he wants to do a major tour of the states. He wants to uh, take this thing, you know, around the country, around the world. And I almost feel like. It's because he noticed that Wendy Dio's got this band on the road, Dio Disciples, you know, with numerous different people in and out of the band. You know, right. including Ripper Owens and, you know, Craig Goldie. And I, I don't know if Rudy Sarzo is currently touring with him or if he's doing the Queen's right thing. I don't know. But anyways, I don't know. The, the whole thing is 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 weird. And I've always just kind of like scratched my head, as I mentioned in the last episode about the whole 
Wendy Dio controlling things. And I can't pinpoint everything exactly, but I don't like her and I don't trust her. And I'm sorry that I'm saying that, but uh, it's just there's something about her that has rubbed me the wrong way as a longtime Dio fan. Do you think that Vivian is, well, let me ask you this. Do you think Vivian has enough time away from Def Leppard to do that big of a tour with uh, Last in Line? <laughs> I think right now Vivian's main priority is his health. He has Hodgkin's lymphoma. He is in treatment for it currently. Uh, Def Leppard just played their last show of the year a couple nights ago in upstate New York by Rochester. So he's, he's, he's done with Def Leppard for the year. They may do some songwriting together um, later this year, but he's done touring and any work that he does with them for the rest of the year is probably going to be minimal. And it's right. going to be on a songwriting, maybe even recording uh, level. And I think he's got, he's got to get he's got to get his health back 100%, which I think is going to happen um, personally. And I do think that he is now, which if you listen to this interview I did with him, he's really setting the tone to. You know, he, he called it, I'm embracing my heritage and, you know, and, and I mean, we're talking about, I, I was asking him like, what songs do you like off of last in line? And he's like talking about evil lies is a great song. And he's going on like he's deep into the Dio stuff, especially the first two records. And he's totally embracing it and he's doing an about face on it. And, and I do believe it's because now that Ronnie has passed, that he's maybe even mentally able to recognize how great the stuff was that he did with them. And, and, and when you hear the interview, you'll hear him like he's, he knows it's good stuff now, you know, and, or at least he's saying that, you know, I believe he believes it. I believe he just hated Ronnie so much because he felt like he was dicked over on money, you know, um, which he went into on the Eddie trunk show, which you can read a transcript on. We don't talk about that in my interview with him, he basically, it was, you know, was claimed that he was almost working for free on those first two albums and tours and was promised that he would be finally reimbursed and treated well when the third album came along, treated well on a financial level. And he wasn't, uh, and that's where their friendship broke down. That's where their working relationship broke down. And that's where he was ultimately fired from the band. So I think he's pissed. He was pissed about that. And he didn't, you know, he probably doesn't get money from any sales of last in line or, or, you know, Holy Diver or even Sacred Heart. He probably signed off on his rights. Who knows? But for a long time, he, he didn't want to give Dio any credit. But now that Dio's gone, for whatever reason, he's embracing that. He is, and he seems like he wants to crush Dio Disciples. I don't know. It's just the vibe I got. I, I, I would question whether it's his health, maybe him thinking, you know what, I'm not going to be, you know, may, maybe I won't be around to do this later on, so why don't I do this now? But obviously, last in line, the, the news about this band happened probably about a year ago. And, and, and things about- have been delayed because of his health, for sure. Okay. So 
but I mean, maybe maybe it's a little a little of everything with like you're saying him sort of getting over the the hurt of, you know, that ruptured relationship that they had and, you know, maybe his health at the same time, maybe appreciating some of the other work that he's done previous. Because, I mean, if you think of Vivian Campbell, you have to think back to the the stuff that he did in Dio because by far it's his most memorable work. And, you know, I think if anything, out of a fan of his work or uh, an early Def Leppard fan, you think of all the talent that he has and you think of the albums that he worked on with Def Leppard, and you know you could almost argue that it's missing that fire and that passion that he did have on those first two Dio albums. But right, yeah, they were on fire. I mean, he says this. I mean, they were just like on fire on those first two records and tours, for that matter. I mean, that that was one amazing band. And and the guy I want to talk to more about. Ronnie Dio and, and and about his time with Dio. You know, we've had him on the show before, but I definitely want to talk about more of the Dio solo years with him is Vinny Apice. We'll get him back on, I'm sure, because John actually is, is friendly with him. And I'd love to talk with Jimmy Bain, too. I think he'd be a fun interview. Yeah, absolutely. And Vinny's got a new album coming out, so I'm sure one way or another, you know, he'll make yeah. the round. Are you referring to the uh, Kill Devil Hill? Absolutely. So it would have been interesting if you would have had the time to ask Jeff Pilson this whole thing, because obviously he's been in the band, but he sort of wasn't in that first incarnation of the band. Uh, but still, I mean, one of, I mean, you could honestly argue that Jeff Pilson has actually been one of the more important players throughout Dio's career because the albums that he has worked on yeah, have all... they were friendly. I mean, you know, Vivian actually mentions Jeff Pilsen in the interview I did with him. Oh. And they were they were um, all friendly, Ronnie and Jeff and the Dokken guys, uh, back oh, yeah. since the last in line tour, which is when Dokken uh, went on the road opening up for, for Dio. And Def Leppard, if I'm not mistaken, has played with Foreigner in the last few years as well, haven't they? Probably. I don't know. Yeah. So so I'm I'm assuming that you know they they still have to be somewhat friendly and Jeff doesn't seem like a a guy that makes very many enemies, you know. He he seems, he seems to like work a real nice guy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and Vivian seems like a nice guy to me too. Uh at least he was very nice to me when you hear the interview you you'll hear it, but he he definitely felt like he was, you know, wronged or taken advantage of uh, by Wendy Dio and and Dio for that matter too, and uh, you know, so uh, regardless, I'm happy to see him embracing the work that he did on those two first two Dio records or first three Dio records for that matter. And right. although he kind of downplays Sacred Heart a little bit in the interview, you know, he doesn't really seem like he's into that record as much as I wasn't either. I mean, I like rock and roll children. I like, you know, what was the king of rock and roll was on there. There was a few really good songs on that record, but it wasn't quite as special as the first two record. I actually, I actually like dream evil with Craig Goldie better than sacred heart. Hmm. Actually for me, I, I really love the first album. The second album is really good, but I do really love those first two albums that Jeff Pilson played on. Right. I guess maybe, 
because it was the the time period of when they came out and you know where I was in in my life you know totally. at the time the, those were albums that came out I guess both in well it was actually after Dehumanizer so that has to be like 93ish 94 95 somewhere in that time period it has to be mid 90s somewhere and you know I love Dehumanizer and I thought that those two albums were almost like a continuation of that just heavy in your face sound that that Sabbath album had and a lot of that I think had to do with that over the top bass playing that not only Jeff was involved in but Vinny's playing was excellent and I think Tracy G really brought something to the table that was lost since you know Vivian was in the band as as good as Craig Goldie is on you know as a player I do think that he's a much better live musician than he is a studio musician with those Dio albums. They're good, but he doesn't really shine as much as maybe the, the other two that I've mentioned. Yeah. Although again, I love that dream evil record. I think he, he sounds great on that. And I think it was such a, a, an important record for Craig Goldie coming off of like, you know, his Jafria stuff. Yeah. I mean, I saw Jafria open for deep purple and they literally got booed off the stage. And, you know, I was like, like a 14, 15 year old kid on that first reunion of the classic deep purple lineup uh, for perfect strangers. And uh, I've probably told this story before. I'm not going to go into it now, but anyways. Um, yeah. And they, they literally were, you know, people were throwing shit at him. It was, it was terrible. And, and uh, I remember when I met Craig Goldie at the Dio record store in signing in 1986 in Melrose park, Illinois, I mentioned uh, something about Jafria to him and he just like cringed and was like, oh yeah, I'm so glad I'm out of that situation. It just was interesting because Greg Jafria had kind of some rock cred, you know, with Angel and stuff and went on to House of Lords. But I need to go back and listen to Jafria. They had one song that was supposed to be a hit that never was a hit type of thing. You know, they were going for that definitely like commercialized, like autograph type of sound but i don't know they just never really worked i actually have a solo album by craig goldie and there's an interesting kiss tie-in to that and it's not greg jeffrey who with house of lords was under the simmons records imprint and with angel was under the casablanca records that's true yeah the lead singer of the album craig goldie put out the the name of the album was craig goldie's ritual was mike stone who was later the lead singer of peter chris's band for that album chris cat one who later ended up being in queensrike very interesting yeah so and that uh craig goldie solo album actually has a few uh cool tracks on it, and he has a bunch of other former members of jeffrey on there as well really? so we'll have to check that out Cool. Well, we were talking about the Maiden beer. Why don't we wrap up tonight's show with a little Maiden? Yeah, with a track that is technically a cover. This track was originally put out on the Nightmare on Elm Street 4 soundtrack. It actually has two members of Maiden on the original, which was Bruce Dickinson and Yannick Gares. And the track is Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter, which ended up appearing on No Prayer for the Dying later on. Apparently, uh, Steve Harris has heard the track and said, no, that song is too good of a track for it not to be a Maiden song. Um, I personally like the original more. It's maybe a raw track, but this is still a, a, a pretty cool version all into itself. So, 
let's get into this and just thank everyone for listening to the show and checking in with us on Twitter and Facebook and all that great stuff. And hope to see you, uh, if not next week, in the coming weeks right here on another edition of Talking Metal Live. Yeah, I enjoy doing them. Hopefully we can uh, do one next week. That's uh, a good plan. Let's find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding right your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader